Okay, so pastoral privilege. Here we go. Best smile. You guys look great. One more. Perfect. All right. Um, That will go in my little memories of God's goodness to us, Grace Church file on my computer. Um, Just love how the Lord sets the table so many times with our minds on the obvious things that we've talked about so much. It's really a good introduction to today's text. This is one rule I have found as I've listened to the godly people the Lord's brought into my life. And as I read the pages of Scripture, one of the rules I've found is that it's often the most godly people I've known, those who seek to walk with the Lord, to honor His Word, to actually want to be changed, or to put it biblically, New Testament, to be being changed. People who don't want to stay where they're at. They want God to actually fix them, change them, not stay where they are, become more like Christ. One rule I've found, I see it in Scripture, I've seen it in so many of the lives of the godly people I've known, is that those who seek to walk with the Lord oftentimes find themselves feeling like the challenges get bigger the more they seek to be faithful. The obstacles pile up in front of us the more we seek to obey God's Word. Well, that shouldn't surprise us because there really is something called spiritual warfare. There actually is an enemy of your soul. He hates God. He hates you. His minions study you and want to destroy you. So the obstacles shouldn't surprise us. When we reach today's text, the Lord has overwhelmingly annihilated two cities in the promised land, Jericho and Ai. They have been defeated, conquered. Then, as we saw last week, Israel says, I got a good idea, let's stop and have a church service, a covenant renewal ceremony, sacrifices, and God's Word written, God's Word read, they're praising God. Things are going well. And no sooner than they dedicate themselves to the Lord and walk as faithfully as they can, they've dealt with sin in the camp, they're trying to put their eyes on Christ, they're listening to His Word. These are Bible people, these are faithful people. No sooner than they try to put their eyes more firmly on Christ, Do they find that their biggest challenge yet is right in front of them? The more faithful, the bigger the challenge. It doesn't always correspond that way, but here we are. It would be easy for any Christian to fall into the trap of breaking your arm while you're patting yourself on the back. Look how faithful we are, look how good we are, look how godly we are. We all know, those of us who are in Christ, we've got a long way to go. That's not just false humility, false self-deprecation. Those who are in Christ know we've got a long way to go. At the same time, I want to affirm something about you precious people. You are Bible people. You are Jesus-gazing word-saturated, church-committed, love your brother and sister, carry each other's burdens, pray for each other in battle, shed tears when people have sorrow, dance down the middle of the street when your brother or sister has a cause for rejoicing. You're that kind of people. We also know there's a lot of congregations call themselves Christians who aren't like that. They're not devoted to the Bible. They got a few feel-good stories. They might sprinkle in a verse or two here or there, but it's not Bible-saturated, Jesus-centered, heaven-pursuing, nations-impacting. That's not their mantra. It's not their MO. Many of them have big, nice, opulent buildings. The lights turn on when you flip the switch. The air works when you push the button. Just show up, do your thing. I don't want to make today's sermon all about 
a meeting space and those challenges in front of us. In fact, as Matt just said, that's a really little thing. That's not our biggest challenge. The big problem, the big obstacle, to quote the brother who discipled me, the great obstacle to God in your life is self. It's you. The enemy's big and bad and does a lot of damage. But pride, self-exaltation, it'll ruin you. Well, lest we miss the forest for the trees in today's sermon text, which is a big portion of Scripture, chapters 9 through 12 of the book of Joshua, lest we miss the forest for the trees to put the punchline right up front, the book of Joshua is one protracted expose of the reality that God's promises will come to pass because God's purposes cannot fail. He will be victorious among the nations. That's a fact. This week, Israel coming out of her church service last week is facing, as I mentioned, her biggest challenge yet. What is that? 31 kings, 31 kings with mighty military power conspire together in different clusters to oppose Israel and her God, and they purpose to wipe God's people off the face of the map. Today's passage wants to remind us of the main point of the book of Joshua, the main point of the Bible, that in the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately fulfilled, Joshua 23 says it plainly, not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. At the outset of today's passage, Israel is surrounded by no less than 31 kings who conspire together to annihilate them at the end of today's passage. We read about Israel's conquest of the southern region of Canaan, then of the northern region of Canaan. And at the end of the passage today, there's rest in the land. God won the battle. I invite you to Joshua chapter 9. We'll read two verses to serve as our opening sermon text. Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, and in all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, heard of it. Verse 2, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and Israel. There it is. Big obstacle. The more faithful, the more word-centered, the more Jesus-focused they got, the bigger the challenge was right in front of them. Join me again as we pray and then we'll dive into this portion of Joshua. Oh, Father, we ask that we would not be duped into thinking that if we walk faithfully with Jesus, the challenges get smaller. At the same time, we ask that we would not be distracted to focus on the challenge. We ask that you would put our eyes on Jesus, the mighty victorious warrior who has and will fulfill all your promises. We mean that, Lord. It sounds like a churchy, preachy thing to say. I'm asking that every single person who's here, whose name you know, you know how many hairs are on our head, you know everything about our life and our heart, I'm asking for every person who hears my voice to have the eyes of their heart riveted to Jesus. Do that for your glory, we ask in his name. Amen. Chapters 9 to 12 are the primary meat of the book of Joshua 
because Joshua is about conquering the promised land and chapters 9 to 12 is about defeating all the enemies and taking charge of the promised land, the land of Canaan. If you're a note taker or just want to know a little outline of verses nine to, uh, chapters 9 to 12, this is it. God of mercy, God of judgment. Not two gods, one God. The God of mercy and the God of judgment. That's one God. The God of mercy is chapter 9. The God of judgment is chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 9, the mercy shows up in a pretty perplexing way. That's Israel making a treaty with the Gibeonites. God of mercy, chapter 9, Israel making a treaty with the Gibeonites. The God of judgment shows up in the next three chapters. The absolute obliteration, annihilation, the unapologetic destruction of every southern king in Canaan. That's chapter 10, the God of judgment. Second verse, same as the first, the absolute obliteration of every northern king and city in chapter 11. And to make sure we have not mistaken what we just read, chapter 12 is an enumeration name by name by name 31 times of every single king and every single city that God destroyed. God of mercy, God of judgment. First, the God of mercy, chapter 9. I did say that this mercy shows up in a striking way. Chapter 9, verses 3 to 27. If you let your eyes fall on verse 3, we'll read from verse 3 to verse 6. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho at Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and became crumbled. And they went to Joshua, verse 6, to the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. It's striking for obvious reasons. God said, no uncertain terms, make no pact no covenant, no alliance with anybody in the land. The Gibeonites knew something about that. They were from the land. They decided for the sake of sparing their own lives that they would seek to make an alliance by trickery with Israel and you see how they did it. They presented themselves as something that they were not. They made it appear like they were from a far off place. They put on costumes. They disguised themselves as something they were not. But the Lord had commanded Joshua and Israel to make no alliance, no covenant with anybody in the land. Let your eyes fall on verse 9. Can everybody hear me okay, by the way? Yeah? Good enough? Mark? Oh, man. It's great. Verse 9. They said to him, Joshua, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them on the way and say to them, we are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. Not only are they deceptive, they're spiritually deceptive. The Gibeonites use spiritual trickery. Instead of walking in God's word, instead of seeking God's face, Joshua and Israel foolishly struck a covenant with the Gibeonites. Look at verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions. I don't know how you're translation renders the end of verse 14, but it's the most significant verse in the chapter. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Verse 15, Joshua made peace with them, made covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Sure, we'll be your friends, you can live with us, we'll live with you. You see, in the Old Covenant, especially in the conquest of the Promised Land, the problem was not, should we let people live or die? The problem was for worship. It was for deity. 
If you amalgamate with these people, God knows your heart will be drawn to their deities. Your kids are going to worship their God. Your sons are going to marry their daughters. And you're going to be pagans before you die. That's the problem. Verse 22, Joshua found out they tricked them. Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now, therefore, you are cursed. You shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood. uh, Verse 27, but Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose. Joshua foolishly made a pact, a covenant with them. He struck an alliance with them, and he was going to stand by it instead of back out of it. So verse, uh, chapter 9 is about the Gibeonites making a treaty with Israel. They became part of Israel. They were amalgamated into Israel. A covenant means you are ours. We are yours. It's like when a husband and wife, a bride and a groom, stand at a marriage altar and say, I give myself to you. From Joshua's perspective, he did that. He knew how significant a covenant, a treaty, a pact, an alliance was before God. God would later say, book of Ecclesiastes, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Joshua knew that God was serious about these interpersonal human covenants. One commentator said the oath was observed from Joshua all the way until the day of Saul, when Saul later ruthlessly broke that treaty. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 21. It's the first time the treaty with the Gibeonites was broken. So from Joshua's perspective, he was bound, and from the Gibeonites' perspective, (laughs) they had two choices, right? We can join Israel or we can die. That's what they said. They sound to me like the psalmist. The Gibeonites, ironically, had the righteous prayer, even in their trickery to join Israel. The psalmist said in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts that's better than a thousand outside, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'm saying chapter 9 is about the God of mercy, even though Gibeon, by trickery, made an alliance with Israel. How is this about the God of mercy? I'm so glad you asked You see, Rahab lied, and she got into the camp. The Gibeonites were deceptive, and they got into the camp. The God of mercy. If you continue to read the pages of the Old Testament, you will find that after Israel conquers the land, after they set up beautiful cities and places of worship and build a temple in Jerusalem, their hearts defect on the Lord. They incur God's curses rather than his blessings, and they're carried away into captivity by Babylon and by Assyria. Many centuries have passed for us to reach that point, but then in God's mercy, God brings them back from captivity in Babylon They begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the temple and the city walls. Who do we find in those passages? Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 7. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 25. The Gibeonites. In two separate lists, the Gibeonites are explicitly named as people who return from captivity to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And one commentator said it well. They appear to have been fully assimilated among the Jews as much as believers in Israel's God, as was Rahab and all the other foreign converts, they were recipients of God's grace, the God of mercy. Before we leave this point, I want to say clearly, they didn't trick God. They might have tricked Joshua and they might have tricked his men, putting on their costume of worn out clothes and their wineskins that were 
becoming brittle, their bread that looked moldy, their sandals that were worn out. They tricked Joshua. They didn't trick God. Because you see, the God of the universe has always been hunting down the hearts of the nations. Joshua is not about genocide. Joshua is about the kingdom of God advancing into the hearts of a pagan world, starting with Israel. The Gibeonites not only aligned themselves with Israel so that they would not perish in Joshua's day, as I just read to you from the book of Nehemiah, they embraced Israel's God so they might live in the heavenly promised land forever with God and with his people. Joshua honored his covenant with them, but I want to be especially plain at this point as I transition from the God of mercy to the God of judgment. Before we leave that first concept, the God of mercy, I want to say loud and clear, there's no Gibeonite entrance into the kingdom of Christ today. You're not tricking Jesus. You can do every religious ceremony that you want to do. You can show up at a place like this. You can listen to a sermon like this. You can tip your hat to Jesus however you want to do it. You're not going to trick him. He sees your heart. Jesus himself said in his kingdom, no thieves are climbing over the wall. Nobody's getting in unless they go through the gate. And Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you come to God through Christ, he promises to make covenant with you forever. He's the God of mercy. The Gibeonites here and hereafter show us that they got grafted in to the people of God like Rahab. If you're promised life by Joshua, which is ironically the New Testament name for Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus, if Jesus makes a covenant with you, you'll live forever. Doesn't matter how many enemies are going to come try to kill you like the next chapter. Chapters 10 through 12 are about the God of judgment. To help you try to envision these chapters, I want to just tell you them in as succinct a fashion as I can. Chapter 9, there's the Gibeonite Treaty, and we're told in those first two verses, which I opened the sermon by reading, that six kings from the southern portion of Canaan come against Israel. Chapter 9, six kings. Chapter 10, five kings, also from the southern part of Israel, banded together against Israel and against the Gibeonites, chapter 10, verse 1 to 5, and then chapter 11, a coalition of many northern kings do the same thing and conspire together to fight against Israel. So chapter 9, six kings against Israel. Chapter 10, five kings against Israel. Chapter 11, a coalition of kings and their armies against Israel. That's a summary. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, Chapter 11, verse 1, has the same word, heard, H-E-A-R-D, 9-1-10-1-11-1, they heard. Chapter 9, verse 1, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite, Canaanite, they heard of it. Chapter 10, verse 1, it came about when Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, 10-1, heard that Joshua had captured Ai. Chapter 11, verse 1, the northern kings. Jabin, king of Hazor, heard it. Here's what happened. These kings were not ignorant. God is not like the Gibeonites. God is not tricking anybody. He's not sneaking up on anybody with his judgment. We've already looked at the fact that four generations earlier, God warned these pagan people, if you do not repent, you will perish. Four generations, nearly 400 years. Forty years earlier through Moses, 
God said he was going to send Israel to their land to wipe them out. There is no trick here. What did they hear? 9-1, 10-1, They heard about Israel's God. They heard about his power. They heard how God had enabled this little ragtag bunch of wilderness wanderers to annihilate kingdoms. They all knew the God of judgment. If you only have a God of mercy, you do not have the God of the Bible. In fact, his mercy comes to you one and only one way. Through the son of his love, drinking the cup of his judgment that you deserved. You can't get mercy by God sweeping your sin and mine underneath the rug. The only way you get mercy is because your judgment fell on somebody else. The anvil of God's wrath fell on the head of his son. He was crushed in our stead. With that as a primer, look at his judgment. We're told in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, what we read a minute ago, if you look at the end of verse 2, 9, 2, all the kings, quote, gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and Israel. They may not have liked each other before now, but they were friends today. And it's amazing Isn't it amazing how ungodly people who hate each other's guts will agree together to be friends to fight against God and his people? Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? Two people, were told, became friends that day. You remember that? Pilate and Herod, they hated each other. But they could agree about one thing. Mutual, mutual hatred for Jesus says made them friends that day. Make sure, make sure that your friends don't put you opposed to the living God. The God of judgment. We've seen in 9-1-10-1-11-1 that these various kings are going to hear of the Lord's power. They're going to conspire together to fight against Israel. But in chapter 10, here's what happens. Six kings decide to fight Gibeon. The problem is Joshua has just made an alliance with them. When the Gibeonites are attacked, beginning of chapter 10, they reach out to Israel and say, we need help. You said that you would help us. So chapter 10 tells us, verse 3, that Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, Hebron, Piram, Jarmuth, Japhia, Lachish, and Debir. There's six kings plus Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Verse 4, come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. Verse 5, so the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, so on and so forth, went up with their armies and camped at Gideon, Gibeon and fought against it. Skip down to verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up to them suddenly by marching all night at Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, pursuing them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. In chapter 10, the warfare is different than chapter 11. In chapter 10, the warfare is predominantly supernatural, cosmological phenomenon, hailstorm, the sun standing still until all God's enemies are defeated. In chapter 11, it's more conventional warfare. Hamstring your horses, make a a shrewd war plan, and fight. But the emphasis is exactly the same. Look at 
chapter 10, verse 11. All these kings fled before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran. The Lord, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Verse 12, then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And this is Joshua's famous prayer, let the sun stand still. Verse 12, verse 13 says, the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nations avenged themselves, the nation of Israel avenged themselves on their enemies. Look at the end of verse 14. The Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. That's the refrain. There's good reason that this passage has become well-known, the sun standing still, and a lot of questions about it. Verse 13 says very clearly, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky. There's lots of views on what that means from Bible-believing conservative scholars and Christians like you. Not only in the biblical accounts, but also in some extra-biblical accounts, there is an allusion to this passage in this astronomical phenomenon of a longer day that never happened before and has never happened since. In fact, in some pagan annals, there is a record of some missing hours, 23 and a half hours that are missing in human history according to some pagan sources, not even biblical, that can be traced all the way back to Joshua's era. Whether the meaning of the passage is literal or figurative, we know now it's the earth, it's not the sun that moves. The main point of the author in this passage of Joshua is not astronomical, it's divine action. Do you notice the big idea in chapter 10 is that God fights for his people. He used meteorological methods, hail stones being thrown at people. He used astronomical methods, the stoppage of the sun. But the main point, the emphasis, is actually not even on what Joshua prayed. There's just a little phrase about him asking God to do something, but we don't get the content of his prayer. The words aren't even recorded. Or what happened in the sky. Very little is said about that, but we do get verse 14. The Lord fought for Israel. If you skip down to verse 30, chapter 10, verse 30, the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel. He struck it, and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. That's Joshua. He left no survivor in it. Skip down to verse uh, 32. The Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel. Skip down to verse 42. Joshua captured all these kings in their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. The point is plain. If you fight against God, you will perish. That's the point of chapter 10. Every southern king, every southern city is demolished. It doesn't matter how mighty your military might be. Psalm 2 says very plainly, if anybody on earth and all the peoples on earth conspire together to fight against God, God has one response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them who make war against him. So God had warned all these Canaanites for decades, even centuries. If you don't repent, you will perish. They were absolutely degraded in their sexual immorality. They were sacrificing their children to their pagan deities. These people had abandoned God and were proud of it. If you fight against God, the point is this. You will perish. He is a God of judgment. They had plenty of time to align themselves with the one true God, like Rahab did, who bowed before him. Like the Gibeonites did, who aligned themselves with Israel's God, just like you and I. There's plenty of time. I know that it's an unpopular message for our day, and it's never been popular in human history. 
but I love you enough to tell you what the Lord Jesus said. It may not be popular. It may not feel good. You may not like it. But ignoring the reality will not make it go away. The Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, unless you repent, you will also perish. If you don't like the conquest of Joshua, I've got worse news for you, as I said a few weeks ago, when Jericho was destroyed. There's a far more extensive conquest on the way. And I do love you enough to tell you, only those who belong to the God of Scripture will be spared. You may say, oh, that was then, that's Old Testament stuff, that's not now. Those things don't happen. The sun stopping the sky, hell storms coming on people in the middle of war. The God of the Bible is old. He's weak. He's unable to move with the kind of power we read about in the Bible. This is the 21st century. Come on. That's exactly, exactly what the remaining kings in Canaan said. Listen. Six kings and their entire army just got annihilated. There's no ignoring the fact. The rest of the kings made the same foolish decision that I just described. Oh, God would never do that to me. Turn your attention to chapter 11. Verse 1, it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Medan, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaphath. That's my best effort. To the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and to Erebah, south of Chinneroth, and to the lowland, the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites, the east, the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the hill country, the Hivite, the foot of Hermon. He's talking to everybody. Verse 4, what do they do? They come out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So, all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Maron to fight against Israel. How stupid are we to make war against the God who cannot be defeated? When the kings of the north heard of Israel's conquest in the south, instead of bowing in reverence before their God, they swelled up with pride. Look at verse 6. The Lord says to Joshua, don't be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. In chapter 10, I mentioned God used supernatural intervention to overthrow Israel's opponents. In chapter 11, the Lord is the one who's still fighting for them. He is conquering Israel's enemies, but he does so through more conventional methods. He empowers Israel to dominate through strategic warfare. Verse 7, Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Meram and attacked them. Make no mistake, though, it was God, 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 not Israel, who was decisive even in the northern battles. Verse 8, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them. Skip down to verse 12. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Skip down to verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. How? Now, I want you to ask yourself a question. We're doing some Old Testament history right here. It's all true. How did Israel find success in every single battle in the promised land? Look at verse 20, chapter 11, verse 20. If your God is not big enough for this sentence to be true, you need a new God. It was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them. 
Our scriptural call to worship said, if you don't tremble at his word, you have no hope. Do you want to know why you fight against God? Do you want to know why you've put your fist in his face and you've told him you're going to do it your way, not his way, no matter what he says to you? Do you want to know? Because God, 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 God is sovereign over your heart. Just like Pharaoh, he will harden you so that you will be destroyed. Every king in Israel fought against God Why did they do it? Because he purposed to judge them. He is the God of judgment. If you will not bow by choice, you will bow by force. Verse 20 of chapter 11. And then in verse 23, we get the conclusion of the matter. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their division by their tribes. Thus, the land had rest from war. At the beginning of our passage, there's 31 imposing, opposing armies. Two chapters later, there's zero. The principles of this passage are so crystal clear. Do not miss the power of the portion of God's Word in Joshua 9 through 12. Here's the principle. I think you all know it. Maybe you can say it better than this if you can come up with a better way. Please do that, but for today's purpose and for this moment, please reckon with this way. The principle of today's passage is this. If you fight against God, your enemy is too big. In 2 Kings chapter 6, horses and chariots and a great army came up against God and His people. They did it by stealth. They came up by night. They surrounded the city. When the attendant of the man of God woke up in the morning and went outside, this is what he saw in 2 Kings chapter 6. He saw an army. On the hillside, he saw horses and chariots had encircled the entire city. This servant said to God's prophet, my master, what shall we do? And the prophet answered, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then God did a miracle. And some of you need this miracle to happen to you right now. Some of you have never seen the verse that I'm about to read. And I have prayed as best I know how with all my heart, that God would strip the scales from your carnal eyes to see the beauty of Christ and his saving power. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain range around the imposing army was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. When Jesus got up from the dead, after dying for your sins, not his own, so that you could be made clean in God's sight forever and get close to Him without being incinerated. That's why He died. That's why He rose. It's not a little Bible story for kids. It's the only hope you have to be made right with the King of the universe. When Jesus got up from the dead, He promised you that He would clothe you in the asbestos covering of His righteousness. If you would put all your faith in Him, here's the next verse. Elisha said to his servant, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
When there's 31 kings surrounding Israel, it doesn't feel like those with us are more than those with them. And you've heard it many times, but it's worth saying it again afresh. You and God is a majority. It doesn't matter who else comes against you. And your earthly battle may not end the way Israel's successes went in Canaan. Yours may end like friends who, while we sat here in this service this morning, have been martyred for their faith in Jesus in hard parts of the world. Your battle may not end like Elisha's in 2 Kings or like Israel's in Joshua. But ultimately it will. Because when Jesus got it from the dead, here's what he promised. Never. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you have me, you have enough. If you fight against me, you will perish. Chapter 9 began with a little summary statement. All the kings of Canaan joined as one to fight against Israel. Chapter 12, it doesn't say all the kings perished. It says Jericho and Ai, Jerusalem and Hebron, Jarmuth and Lachish, Eglon, Gezer, Debir, Geder, Hormah, Arad, Libna, Adullam, Makeda, Bethel, Tapua, Hefer, Aphek, Lasharon, Madon, Hazor, Shimron, Meron, Akshphah, Tanak, Megiddo, Kedesh, Jotniam, Dor, Goim, Tirzah, in all, chapter 12, verse 24, 31 kings. At first, let's all get together and fight God. At the end, you die, you die, you die you die 31 times. It doesn't matter how many are against you if you have God on your side. You and God, as I said, is a majority. You may suffer. You may die. But in the end, God will vindicate his people. And in the end, every single person who persecuted the people of God, every single person who tyrannized you for your faith, every single person who ridiculed you for your fidelity to Jesus will bow low in honor at the feet of your Lord as he vindicates you in their presence. Just like all these kings were defeated, God keeps a record. He names their names. I don't know if you've noticed in the New Testament, God's not shy about naming names. Alexander, Not not that Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith. That one. He did me much harm. Demas. He left us because he loved this present world. On and on again, you get names in the New Testament. God's not opposed to telling you who he's going to destroy. Name by name. Just like all these kings who are defeated, God keeps a record of names. And I assure you that you do want God to keep your name. But you want your name in Luke chapter 20. Uh, Pardon me, I think it's chapter 10, verse 20. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice, Jesus said. Rejoice, get happy about this. Get glad about this. Rejoice over this, that your names are recorded in heaven. If you want one thing to hang on to from today's passage, hang on to this. In the end, God will win. He's already defeated the greatest enemy of all. When Jesus died on the cross, Colossians says, he disarmed Satan. When he got up from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he put death to death. Romans 1 says, when he got up from the dead, he was vindicated as the Son of God with power. Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given into the palm of his hand. Philippians chapter 2 says, the Lord of the universe who sits on heaven's throne now and will soon burst the sky open with all of his radiant glory is the Lord before whom every person will bow. So just think of his soon coming worldwide victory. 
He destroyed kings who opposed him in the southern and northern part of Canaan in Joshua chapter 10 and 11. But if you let your eyes fall on chapter 11, verse 19, there was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Everybody else died. We know it's not exhaustive to a man. You can keep reading the book to see, but this is the divine purpose. You oppose God, you die. You join God and his people, you live. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. I I, I can't leave without this one application. The title of the sermon is Victory Over the Nations. I hope that's obvious for why. But the true and greater Joshua is still accomplishing victory among the nations. Israel was no better than the Canaanites. They needed to be saved just like you and I need to be saved. Israel was sinful just like the Canaanites were sinful. They needed a savior just like the Canaanites needed a savior. God even told Israel before they went into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not because you're righteous. It's because I'm God. And God's still saving people today. He's still accomplishing victory among the nations today. He's still calling people to join him by faith and to join his people in seeking his face and obeying his commands. We're not looking for a theocracy in Washington, D.C. We're looking for a Christocracy in the local church. Right here is where Jesus must hold first place in everything. Colossians 1, preeminence in everything. In the New Covenant, the battlefield is not a plot of geography somewhere on planet Earth. The battlefield is inside your heart. Men and women, boys and girls, What does God want to do in your life? I would say he wants to do the book of Joshua. Chapter 1 to 8, he wants to enter. Chapter 9 to 12, he wants to conquer. And chapter 13 to 24, he wants to divvy out every part of your life to the Lordship of Jesus. That's what the book of Joshua is about. Because Yahweh is salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would do what we prayed at the beginning, that you would let us see the glory of Jesus and fix our eyes on him by faith. That's what we need, and it is for that that we pray in Jesus' name.